in the fall of 2020 in the midst of a global pandemic. I and six of my friends attempted a double crossing of the Grand Canyon to raise awareness and money for Hope Heals camps for families with disabilities. However, we soon discovered that our canyon crossing became a metaphor for something so much bigger. We realized that we all have canyons to cross every day. Not just physical, but relational and emotional and spiritual. Canyons between us and loved ones, between us and those people, between who we are today and who God longs for us to become. Having survived the 48-mile run that took just over 17 hours to complete, I've learned that there are seven steps we each can take to cross the canyons God wants us to cross in our lives. So friends, let's cross some canyons together. Hi, Matt McCarty here. I'm part of the Grand Canyon Cross Your Canyon team. And I think with any canyon, regardless of what it is, you have to have a really clear why and a really clear how. What was my why in doing this Grand Canyon run? One of the biggest reasons is just fear in my life. And seeing it as an opportunity to face something really scary and immense and intimidating. We ran down one side and through the canyon and then we had to run up the north side. And for me, that was my greatest challenge the entire run. The other guys were running it much faster and I was totally caboosing the whole thing to the point where I was sort of by myself the last couple of miles of that climb. And it is an intense climb. You're about 20 miles and change in and it just feels like you are endlessly climbing a wall. And frankly, I was it was scary, to be honest with you. I think the trail was narrow. Um, there were times when I was so fatigued, I was really lightheaded. And I thought, well, if I step one direction, one foot in the wrong direction, um, I'm, I'm going down. I think the how, for me, it was constantly going back to Jesus. I don't mean like hanging out or like reading cool Bible verses, but being in a posture of just clinging like we would when we were kids and we were on a cliff or we were standing um, on the shoreline with a gnarly shore break and you immediately are grabbing hold of your dad to feel safe and to feel like it's going to be okay and to feel like you're not alone and so that was certainly my how in crossing this canyon so really clear why and a really clear how are central to facing and crossing any canyon. All right, friends, we are in the third week of our Crossing Canyon sermon series in the season of Lent that goes all the way up to Easter Sunday. And if you haven't been with us, we are exploring as a backdrop, a metaphorical backdop, a journey that me and six of my friends took in the fall of 2020, where we physically crossed the Grand Canyon. It was a 48 mile running and hiking journey. 10,000 feet of elevation descent and gain. That experience took about 17 hours, four hours longer than we planned. And we had to start at 3 a.m., 35 degrees. And we experienced that physical canyon crossing. And we've discovered that so much of what we experience physically applies to our emotional lives, our relational lives, our spiritual lives as well. 
And what we're doing in this season of Crossing Canyons is acknowledging the fact that there are canyons all around us that God is calling us to cross. There might be a chasm between you and a loved one that God is calling you to cross. There might be a vast growing distance between you and a group of people or a type of people that God is longing, calling you to cross. There's a distance between who you are today and perhaps the person you long to become. A great distance between who you are today and the person God longs for you to become. And what we're doing in this seven-week sermon series, again, starting with our physical canyon crossing, we're taking a look each week at a different step, seven steps in total of how we can apply those steps into our lives, not just across physical canyons, but all the canyons that God is calling us to cross. Week one, if you missed it, it was a willingness to show up to the start. And in many ways, it's perhaps harder to show up to the start than just to get to the finish. So much fear can arise. Rationalization can can pop up why it's not worth even showing up to the start in the first place. Perhaps you've put off a phone call to a family member for far too long. And with every passing month that goes by, it is harder and harder and harder and harder and harder for you to show up to the start and just pick up the phone. Perhaps there's an addiction or a pattern that you've gotten caught up in in your life and it's, it's gone on for so long that it almost seems impossible to start the work of moving away from those unhealthy patterns. We discovered that in week one. In week two, last week, it was a reminder that we need to be willing to descend into the dark unknown. For us in the the physical Canaan crossing, we literally had to descend into darkness beginning at 3 a.m. down into the, one of the largest canyons in the world, the, you know, those iconic photographs of the Grand Canyon where you can see the, the distance and the depth. At 3 a.m., it's pitch black. You can't see the fullness of the journey ahead. And how true is that in our lives when God calls us to do something? We don't have all the steps mapped out for us. We not, might not be able to see the fullness of the journey ahead. And we were reminded last week that faith is something of substance. Uh, it is the, the, the substance of things hoped for, the, the certainty, the evidence of things unseen. And God's word and ultimately a relationship with God offers us something of substance, a map as it were, so that we can step out in faith, know where we are in relation to God's desire for us as we continue to take one step at a time by faith. This week, week three, we are getting to this third step and you can imagine this uh, in our physical crossing because there are no bridges that, that span over the Grand Canyon. In order for us to cross our physical canyon, we had to get to the bottom of it. Now that makes sense, of course, for a canyon crossing without a helicopter, uh, you know, without a, a jet pack, without a, without a plane, without a hot air balloon. We, we had to descend, yes, and we had to get to the bottom of it. We had to get to the bottom of the Grand Canyon in order for us to cross up and over to the other side. Now here's what's interesting about the Grand Canyon. There are maps all over the Grand Canyon. 
They warn you not to go to the bottom. They tell you, and there's pictures of people vomiting, pictures of people with heat stroke. There's all these massive warnings that say, whatever you do, don't get to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. There's risk there. There's danger there. However, the only way to cross that canyon was to get to the bottom of it. It is so much safer to stay on the surface. It's so much safer to just dip your toe in and kind of step back. In fact, there are also uh, elevation maps online that we saw in advance. Really interesting, these, these maps. It, it kind of gave a side view of the, the Grand Canyon. And it had different color gradients the deeper you got into the canyon. And so when you look at this, this kind of side view map, it had a, a green band across the top, a very shallow band. And kind of the, the notes and the legend of that map said that, you know, this is what is safe for you to experience in a one-day hike. Don't go further than a mile and a half down. Now, the trail that we took was seven miles to the bottom. And all the warnings, uh, you know, physical warnings and online warnings say, don't go beyond a mile and a half down. And here's what's interesting. Every, every stride that you take running down the Grand Canyon is equivalent to about three to four steps back up. So much easier with the, the aid of gravity to get down. It takes a lot less energy to get down. But again, every step, every stride you know, in the back of your mind, that is three, four, maybe more labored steps to get back out. And so that thin layer of green below it has a pretty large uh, layer of like this yellowish orange or so. And all the warnings and the legends of those maps say, whatever you do, uh, this is not recommended. Uh, take caution. Uh, you need to be in, in great shape. Go as a group. All these warnings. And, and, and it showed, you know, once you got past the surface, there are inherent dangers. And of course, we knew that going into it as we descended into the dark unknown. We knew that the further we got down further and further, the, the longer it would take to get back out, the further we were from comfort, the further we were from rescue, the further we were from, you know, a warm bed, uh, hot food. And in the back of my mind, as I descended into the dark unknown, trying to get to the bottom of it, getting to the Grand Canyon, I could picture that map that had on the bottom this massively vibrant red band. That's a danger warning. Do not go this low. Whatever you do, don't go to the bottom in a single day. And yet we chose to go. Stride after stride, minute after minute, hour after hour, finally, still in the dark, getting to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And what's so fascinating, when you cross from the South Rim, you immediately, you cross over a bridge. And for us, we crossed over that bridge in the dark. We knew we were at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. We still couldn't see. And in that moment, the, the, the reality, the gravity 
of my situation, of our situation sunk in. We were only a couple hours in. We still had half a day's left of journey ahead of us to get to the North Rim and then back out to the South Rim. And yet in that moment, I realized once I was at the bottom, I knew that I was the furthest from home I would ever be in our journey. At the bottom of the Grand Canyon, I knew I was at the riskiest point of the journey. You know, you can get to the other side and still, you know, hail an Uber, a, a shuttle. You can still figure out how to get home. But once we were at the bottom, it was all us. Within about 15 minutes, you pass by a place called Phantom Ranch, so appropriately named, especially when you're running through at about 5.30 in the morning. The sun still hasn't uh, even reached a civil twilight at that point. Not even an ounce of light coming in the depth of the canyon. And I knew that there was warm beds there. I knew that there was hot food there. I knew that there was showers there. I knew that there was a medic there. But you had to, to book the reservation for the Phantom Ranch nine months in advance. The inn was full, so to speak. That wasn't a place of refuge for us. It was for others that had booked it far in advance. And so for us, once we got to the bottom of it, the Grand Canyon, it was the riskiest point in the whole journey. And yet it was necessary. It was needed. It was required for us to cross that canyon. The same is true in the canyons that God is calling you to cross whether they be emotional, relational, spiritual. In Scripture, when God calls you to do something, to be something, whether that's to be a peacemaker, a reconciler, a person who asks for forgiveness, who extends forgiveness, somebody who cares for those on the margins, maybe it's somebody who prays for enemies, there is a long laundry list of canyons that God is calling you and I to cross. And there are general canyons that every believer is called to cross. All the commands of scripture, you could say, are canyons between who you are and what you're doing today and who you could be and what you could be doing as you follow Jesus. There are general canyons and there are specific canyons for each person that is in alignment with scripture that God calls each of us to. So how do we not just play it safe, stay on the surface, keep things superficial. Imagine if you were trying to reconcile with someone and you just kept it surface level and you refused to do the deep work of reconciliation. That canyon would never be crossed. In the same way, we can never get across the Grand Canyon by just staying on the surface. We have to be willing to get to the bottom of it. Now, we use that phrase in our society, you know, we're going to get to the bottom of it to communicate that we want to get to the truth, that we want to leave no stone unturned, uh, that we want to leave no option uh, unexplored, that we actually are going to do the thorough work, the deep work that whatever the thing calls us to. And again, the very definition of a canyon, it has a bottom, And I believe that many of us, we don't show up to the start or we turn around partly there because of the fear, because of the unknown, because of the risk, because of the danger, because of the discomfort of what the bottom of these canyons can look like. So how do we get to the bottom of it? 
in the canyons that God has called us to cross. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to start with Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite sections of Scripture. And I'm going to read for us verses 5 through 11. And that's going to be our starting point today. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would use this text, God's Word, to not just inspire you to imitate Jesus, but to give you a strength that comes from Jesus, to give you a courage that comes from Jesus, to give you a mind that comes from Jesus that is willing to get to the bottom of it. So listen to this as I read out of the New Revised Standard Version. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. As we say every week, thanks be to God. Now, could you hear? Could you imagine the canyon that Jesus was willing to cross that actually had a bottom? The greatest chasm that has ever existed is the chasm between humanity and God. It's a chasm that religion tries to solve and can't. In fact, there's no thing that you could do or avoid doing. There's no ritual or rite or set of circumstances that could enable you to cross that canyon. And the beauty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which isn't religion, it is a relationship that is offered to you because Jesus is the greatest canyon crosser of all, who is willing to cross the chasm from God to you, to reconcile you back to God. And you could say it this way, that Jesus was willing to show up to that. He was willing to descend into the dark unknown to imagine that the, the very Son of God that has existed eternally with God the Father and God the Spirit left the comforts of heaven. I thought leaving the comfort of my tent was crazy. Think about leaving the comforts of heaven that Jesus has existed and experienced for all of eternity in relationship, perfect relationship, beautiful relationship with, with God the Father and God the Spirit. And he descends into the dark unknown and he is born as a helpless baby. The one who spoke all things into existence had to learn how to talk. The one who is before all things and whom all things are for, as Colossians chapter 1 says, had to learn how to walk. Had to have his, his first century diapers changed to think about the descent 
of Jesus. Who isn't just a human, he is fully human, but he's also fully God. And this section of scripture is referred to as the Christ hymn. And it says in verse seven that he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. Talk about a descent into darkness, the doctrine of the incarnation, God coming in the flesh, he has come to us. But how far down did he go? Goes on. It says, be found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. You see, Jesus was willing to get to the bottom of it and the bottom of that canyon, the bottom of that chasm between God and humanity was a first century tool of humiliation and executionary method that was reserved for non-Roman citizens. One that was a tool of shame, of disgrace, or even the word excruciating. We had to come up with that word to help us understand the, the pain that comes out of. Ex is Latin for out of. Crux is the Greek word for for cross, the pain that comes out of the cross is excruciating. I think we use that word far too often when we get a hangnail, a paper cut, uh, we, we bang our toe. That's not excruciating. This was. But the bottom of it was actually so much more. And in order to understand that, what I want to do is I want to take a step back. And I want to tell you a historical account of a biblical story that's found in 2 Samuel 15. In fact, in 2 Samuel 15, there's this devastating moment for King David. King David is the king of Israel that God has chosen to put into that place of rule and reign over God's people. God has promised to care for him, to provide for him, that it would be his throne. And yet we discover in 2 Samuel 15 that his son Absalom had different plans. And so he begins to conspire. He begins to, to work the angles and he begins to uh, cause enough of the nation of Israel to have more allegiance for Absalom than King David. And ultimately, Absalom usurps his father's throne. He takes it by force. And so King David, a man after God's own heart, scripture says, he had his problems, he had his mistakes, and yet he repented, he turned back to God, he asked for forgiveness. He had this deep love for God. It was expressed in a relational sort of way where he worshiped God with abandon, even though he made mistakes, he kept turning back to God. And now he is throneless. And his son Absalom doesn't want to just take his throne. He wants to kill his father. And so in 2 Samuel 15, we hear this historical account of what King David then does. It says that he leaves Jerusalem. He leaves barefoot. He leaves weeping. The Levitical priests go with him. Some of the people in the nation of Israel go with him. They are mourning. And he carries the Ark of the Covenant. 
He doesn't take shoes, but he takes the Ark of the Covenant. When you go on a journey, you're supposed to take shoes. And King David rightly knew, a man after God's own heart, that what he needed more than shoes, what he needed more than protection physically was God's presence. And in 2 Samuel 15, verse 23, it says that King David, weeping and barefoot and carrying the Ark of the Covenant, crossed through the Kidron Valley. The first time we hear that geographical reference. The Hebrew word Kidron comes from the root word in the Hebrew, Kadar. It literally means to be dark. Darkness. The valley of darkness. And I want you to just to imagine, to put yourself in, well, you can't put yourself in King David's shoes because he was barefoot, but put him in his frame of mind in his headspace. Likely feeling like God had abandoned him, perhaps, circumstantially, and yet he, he has the mind to carry the presence of God with him, and he, he crosses through the valley of darkness, fleeing for his life. Circumstantially, people would look on that and say, where is your God? Are you sure you don't want to turn around and worship the other gods? Are you sure you don't want to just back off this pursuit of a relationship with God? A lot of reasons why he might have turned around in that moment, not gotten down and through that valley off to the other side where it says he ascended the Mount of Olives and ultimately worshiped God on a mount. A lot of reasons he could have turned around before he got to the bottom of the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Darkness, and yet he was carrying the presence of God with him, that God's presence was carrying with him. And get ready for this. It was that journey through the Kidron Valley, through the Valley of Darkness, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the 23rd Psalm. I want you to hear these words, these familiar words, words that many of you know that perhaps you didn't have the historical context of why they were written. Psalm 23 David fleeing from his son, having just lost the throne, crosses through the Kidron Valley, and it says this in Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you, God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord, my whole life long. King David knew that in the darkest moments of his life, when he had hit rock bottom, when he had gotten to the bottom of it, that it was God who walked with him every step of the way. And that it was God who was leading him in right paths that it was God who provided protection and provision. And even though he was away physically from a place of comfort, he knew even in that moment that he was dwelling with the Lord. 
How remarkable. And yet if we don't understand the fullness of Scripture, we might close this up and and wrongly think that the way that we can get to the bottom of it, the way that we can get to the bottom of the canyons that God is calling us to is somehow just be like King David, that we should just muster up the strength in our own accord, in our own might, in our own will, and just, you know, grin and bear it. And a lot of human-made religion is that, that you've just got to do this and do that. Or perhaps, you know, there's these five principles that if you could just apply this to your life and that's gonna help you get to the bottom of things in your life, that'll cause you to do the hard work, the deep work. And yet the reason why King David was able to cross through that valley of the shadow of death and say the things that he said is because another many generations later, would cross through a valley, a deeper valley, a valley unlike we could ever imagine. And because of that, that person was able to get to the other side. Well, what am I referencing? You know, 2 Samuel 15 is the first time the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Darkness, is mentioned in Scripture. The second time it's mentioned in scripture is in John 18. The moment after Jesus with his disciples at the last supper for telling the death that he was about to go through, takes bread, takes a cup, breaks it, blesses it, pours out the cup, signifying his body broken and given, his blood poured out. And he, he partakes in this this Passover meal that he now took all the imagery of that redemptive Exodus moment and in the book of Exodus, he takes that all upon himself and he says, this is all about me. All the history of the nation of Israel and the redemption of Israel, Jesus says, is all about me. All the things that have come before me are a foreshadow for me. And after enjoying that meal with the disciples, it says this in John chapter 18. After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Jesus, I mean, my mind just blows apart thinking about this. I, I, get, I get goosebumps thinking about this, that the same valley, the Kidron Valley that King David had to flee from, to run through, to get to the other side where he wrote the 23rd Psalm is the same valley that Jesus enters into after he partakes in the Last Supper. And the remarkable thing is that he doesn't pass through to the other side He waits. And you know what happens in the garden. He asks his disciples to pray and they fall asleep. He withdraws from them and he prays and he is descending deeper and deeper in obedience to God the Father. And it says in scripture that he begins to sweat blood, the anxiety, the horror, the reality of what Jesus is about to experience. 
He's not dipping his toe into the canyon. He is going deeper and deeper and deeper, and he begins to pray. And out of total obedience, he asks his heavenly father, this is not sinning, this is not temptation. He says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. What cup is he referring to? There wasn't like a coffee cup there, a solo cup in the garden. What's he talking about? Well, one of the cups that is referenced throughout all of Scripture is the cup of wrath. In the Old Testament, it was the cup that was reserved for God's enemies. It was a cup that those who would be opposed to God were, were required to drink in judgment, in righteous judgment, in, in, in fairness, and remember I said how the greatest chasm that has ever existed is the, the chasm between humanity and God and the, the result of that chasm, us living for ourselves, us living selfishly, us turning our backs to God and each other, not loving our neighbors or ourselves, all the things that God longs for us to do just as humans. I'm not exempt. You are not exempt. Humanity that has ever lived is not exempt from that. Because of that chasm, we are then considered enemies of God. And we are called to drink the cup of wrath, Scripture says. But God loves us so much. The book of Romans says that he demonstrated his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies, while we should have drank the cup of wrath, Christ died for us. And in that moment, in the Kidron Valley, in the valley of darkness, in the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus, sweating blood, prays, God, take this cup from me, but thy will be done. But if it is your will, if this is what you are calling me to, to reconcile humanity back to yourself, so be it. And Jesus stays in the garden. He stays at the bottom, so to speak. And he waits. And he doesn't cross through on the other side in his own strength, in his own power. In obedience, he waits. And you know, as you read later on in John 18, that a detachment of Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and they do. And one of the things that Jesus says, and you've heard me share this before, it's absolutely mind-blowing to consider uh, what happens. He says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And this detachment of Roman soldiers, perhaps 300 Roman soldiers paid to stand on their feet when they hear him say, I am he. He didn't just say, oh yeah, that's me. That's, that's, I'm that guy. No, he says, I am the very name, the divine name of God, the name that God gave Moses through the burning bush. And it says in John 18, that when they heard him say, I am he, they, they stepped backwards and they fell to the ground. He's at the bottom of it so to speak. He has all the power to get out of it. And he chooses in that moment to say this, who is it you were looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I told you, I am he. Therefore, take me and let my disciples go. And they arrest Jesus. And they free his disciples 
And then as we see, as it records throughout the rest of the gospel according to John, that the descent that Jesus was on was deeper than the Kidron Valley, was deeper than the valley of darkness, was deeper than the valley of the shadow of death. Remember Philippians 2, the apostle Paul writes that he humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death. And not just any death, death on a cross. The descent that Jesus made because of his willingness to get to the bottom of it. I want you to grasp this. I want you to understand this, that Jesus could have stayed shallow. He could have kept things superficial. He could have avoided the cross. In fact, he even said that he had legions of angels that he could call upon his command to to rescue him. And he chose to use all that power to serve. He chose to use all of his power to lay down his life. And the remarkable thing is that because he got to the bottom of it, the son of God, giving his life, not having his life taken, but giving his life for you and me, it gets to the bottom of it. It gets to the bottom of truth. And therefore, no stone is left unturned. No human is exempt from the free gift of grace that God offers us. No sin is left unpaid for. No situation is unredeemable because Jesus got to the bottom of it. And because he was willing to go deep, the redemptive, powerful love of God is deeper than anything you could ever imagine. You know, the Nicene Creed that was written by the early church to bring some of this truth together even says that Jesus descended not just into the grave, but into the depths of hell. The links that Jesus would go through for you and for me. And what's so remarkable is that because Jesus crossed that canyon, because Jesus got to the bottom of that canyon, it says in Philippians 2 that therefore God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And therefore, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, every single canyon that you could ever cross that God calls you to cross, no matter how deep it gets, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how frightful it gets, no matter how risky it gets, Jesus walks that journey with you. And because he crossed that canyon, he can cross this canyon in your life. And when you pray Psalm 23, know that you're not just praying a prayer that King David prayed centuries ago. You are praying scripture. And because you are praying scripture, you are praying the very words of God. And so what does that mean? That means that when you pray the Psalm of Psalm 23, like any other Psalm, like any other prayer in scripture, you are praying the prayers of God. And I wonder if when Jesus was going through the Kidron Valley in the eternal nature of God who spoke all things into existence that was not only very familiar with King David but was responsible for his birth and for his life 
was responsible, Jesus was, as the living word to compile the, the written word of God. Could it be that, that that foreshadow centuries before when King David went through the Kidron Valley, that when he said those words was just a foreshadow of the prayer that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Can you imagine Jesus praying, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God, you, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Therefore, I will fear no evil. You, you, you prepare a table uh, before my enemies. Now, here's what's remarkable. Going back to Psalm 23. When you pray those words, you actually are fulfilling what it says in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2, which says this. Let the same mind... Be in you that was in Christ Jesus. This is the key that unlocks how you can get to the bottom of it. It is not you in your own mind, grinning it out, toughing it out, just having the endurance to get to the bottom. No, no, no. It is you having the mind of Christ. The beauty of the gospel isn't that you have someone that you just get to imitate and emulate, you have the very one that, that defeated death dwelling in you. I love how it says in Scripture, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave now dwells in you. Scripture talks about having the mind of Christ. As followers of Christ, we now have the one who is willing to cross that canyon dwelling in us. And therefore, the Apostle Paul says, if you want to get to the bottom of it, allow not your mind in your own flesh, in your own fear that rationalizes all the reasons why you shouldn't get to the bottom of it, allow the mind of Christ, which has already crossed the most infinite chasm of all, to guide you step by step as you follow Jesus through the power of the Spirit into the canyons that God calls you to cross that will require you to get to the bottom of it. And you will never have to get as low as Jesus went. You'll never have to go to the depths that Jesus went to. And so again, if you can cross that canyon, you can cross this canyon in your life. This is about cultivating in a relationship the very presence of God in your life. There are resources, infinite resources at your disposal. If you open up your heart and your mind to saying, Jesus, guide me. Help me in this relationship that is broken with a friend, a family member, a, a coworker. Help me get to the bottom of it. You show me what the depth that you want me to go to in humility, in service, in love, in care for the other. You're going to have to do it through me. That's the gift that God gives us through Jesus Christ. So let's cross some canyons together this week. But let's be willing to get to the bottom of it. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you were willing to cross the ultimate valley of death. And you crossed it not in your own strength, but in obedience to God the Father who brought you through it, who enabled you to descend even to the depths of hell, to then rise forth from the graves, to now be at the, the highest place of all, the right hand of God the Father in heaven, where you dwell present tense. So Jesus, would your spirit and your mind animate us, fill us, so that we would be willing to follow you into the canyons that you call us to cross. 
Jesus, because of what you've done, you are worthy of our worship. And as our great canyon crosser, would we be melted by what you've done for us? And would we respond with courage and humility and worship? It's in your name, Jesus, we pray and we say together, amen.